Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Jason, and this is episode number 45, Border Walls and Wildlife. Before we get started, let me just say this is a political talk, but without really delving into politics per se. We're going to be talking about the wildlife found in Sky Island. Sky Island is located in southeastern Arizona and northwestern Mexico. The U.S.-Mexico border crosses right through this beautiful country. And today, I'm talking with the program director of Sky Island Alliance, Emily Burns. Emily has a 15-year resume of helping wildlife. She has worked for Save the Redwoods League, started the Citizen Science Project Fernwatch, and now she is a lead scientist of a wildlife study at a proposed site of a new section of border wall. Whether you agree with the border wall or not, we're going to be talking about how this study is being conducted, why we even need this study, and what the Sky Island Alliance hopes to do with that information. So let's get rolling so we can find out what kind of wildlife is in this very unique landscape. Today we are joined by Emily Burns. She is the program director and lead scientist for Sky Island Alliance. Emily, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I feel like first uh, we need to let everyone know that's listening. What is Sky Island Alliance? Uh, I read an article recently uh, about what we're going to be talking about, a study that the Alliance is doing, but I haven't heard of Sky Island Alliance before. And when I started looking into it, you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff and it looks like an absolute beautiful area of the country. So could you just give us a little bit of background on what Sky Island Alliance is? Absolutely. Sky Island Alliance was started in 1991 um, to help protect the Sky Island region of southern Arizona and northern Mexico. The Sky Islands are high elevation mountains that are separated from other mountains by grasslands and deserts. So you get true mountaintop forests that are isolated from others and that's why they're called islands. And Sky Island Alliance wants to make sure that the forests and the ecosystems defined on these mountaintops continue to be viable habitat for wildlife that their water sources continue to flow and provide water for people and wildlife and endemic native plants. And we really wanna make sure that people are able to come and enjoy and experience these remarkable places. So we want connectivity between the Sky Islands and we work with hundreds of volunteers to do projects on the ground to help protect these places. So part of the Sky Island region, I mean, Part of it's in Arizona and part of it's in Mexico. So mm -hmm. are you working with anyone in Mexico to try to coordinate the conservation efforts that you're doing? We are. We work with the equivalent of the National Park Service in Mexico. 
It goes by the abbreviation CONAMP. And in northern Mexico, in Sonora, which is the state that's adjacent to Arizona, um, there's a really large reserve called the Bavispe Reserve, and it's one of the largest protected areas in this part of Mexico. And so when we think about trying to protect wildlife pathways between habitats in Arizona, we're thinking about all of the places that these animals need to migrate between the Bavispe Reserve through private ranch lands to protected lands in, in the U.S. Now, the study that the Alliance is conducting and really has launched uh, this right now, um, it's basically has been brought about because of a new stretch of border wall between the United States and Mexico, correct? That's right. For decades, border infrastructure has changed and been built, but under the current Trump administration, there's an acceleration of border wall construction. And there have been a series of environmental and other laws that have been waived to help the construction process proceed without any environmental study or review or mitigation prior to construction. So if you think about it this way, if the government was going to build a highway that was going to span the United States and cross state lines, there would be an extensive study period for multiple years to understand who's living in the path of this new highway and what efforts can be made to protect important cultural sites, important environmental areas um, as the construction project proceeds. That's not happening on our border. And what we're very concerned about is when the wall is fully built, it's going to sever migration routes between Mexico and the United States that have been used by many wildlife species like black bear, mountain lion, jaguar, mule deer, white deer, javelina, um, and so many species for thousands of years. Yeah, being an East Coaster, uh, really the only migration that, that happens around us is really waterfowl and migratory birds in general, uh, woodcock, ducks, geese. Um, so, you know, as far as what may limit an animal to be able to get from one place to another on its migration, that's not something we out east really think about too much because we don't really have that much on the way of migratory mammals that are on the ground moving. But we've become very aware of what people are calling um, migratory corridors from some studies that have been done in Wyoming and Colorado with mule deer and just how man-made structures have really impacted their how, the route that they migrate. Um, obviously with a border wall and you know it's not just a fence um, that a mule deer might be able to jump over. I mean you're talking a very high very tall impenetrable structure so it makes sense that it would have a major impact on the migration of a lot of different animals. Yeah, that's right. And because there hasn't been research by the government into the impacts of the wall, um, we really are, are sort of fearing for the worst. The, the border wall that's being constructed is 30 feet high, and it's made out of six inch wide steel bollards, which are placed very closely together. So most animals, large animals, cannot jump over it. They can't pass through it. Um, and so it's a complete barrier uh, to prevent animals moving through the area. 
So in the case of a species like jaguar, whose home populations, its breeding populations are in just over the border in Mexico, border wall construction will sever the last corridors for those for jaguar and they won't be roaming into the United States anymore. So that's a very clear example, but species like pronghorn, um, the deer that we've been talking about, they, they are just, will be stopped in their tracks by this wall. And even in old stretches of the border that have had wall from previous administrations, shorter walls, but steel walls, um, you can go and witness animal tracks all the way up to the base. And they just, you see the prints in the ground and then where do the animals go from there? You know, they have to turn around and go back. And I'm sure, I mean, obviously, any man-made structure that we put in, especially something like this, it's going to have an impact on the routes that those animals are taking. But even with that, when they're building this wall, it's also going to have an impact to the habitat around where the wall is being built, too. They're not just, you know, dropping it in with a helicopter and they're not making any changes to the ground. There's, um, you know, the Border Patrol access roads next to it, and there's this large right-of-way. So you're when you think about the a 35 mile stretch that they're trying to put in here that equates to a whole lot of habitat loss as well that's absolutely right yeah the infrastructure the road infrastructure that you described is extensive and they're also to draining water out of this relatively arid region to make all of the concrete in order to build the wall um, it's estimated that there will be hundreds of thousands of gallons of water taken out of cienegas, which are wetland areas that host a variety of native and endangered fish species. And, um, and it's, it's one of those things that this water is such a precious resource. If we drain it and put it into concrete in the wall, it's gonna have this ripple effect that affects the whole food, the food chain in this region. Yeah, again, as an East Coaster, that's another aspect that we don't necessarily think about. Um, we, for the most part, I feel like m the majority of the people that live on the East Coast pretty much take water for granted. Um, it just, where I live in, in southwestern Pennsylvania, it just rained every day for the past two and a half weeks um, to the point Spend where the ground literally <laughs> couldn't take any more rain. So uh, we don't even think in terms of, of water unless it's too much and we're having flooding issues. Mm -hmm. Well, we do get flooding down here as well. I mean, we go th through stretches of, of dry times, which are part of the normal climate down here. But of course, with climate change, there are more and more extreme events that are happening. Um, many places where the wall is being constructed, it is in floodplain areas or crossing creeks, going through rivers. Uh, we don't know how the wall is going to stand up with those um, with those events that happen, um, but the extreme weather that we have now with climate change is it's another stress on the wildlife species we're seeking to protect. And so you put an it's compounding everything with the wall. So the wall combined with other issues, um, that's why it's really a recipe for environmental disaster here in the borderlands. So the circle back to the migration aspect is there. Could there be a middle ground where a wall could be constructed that would satisfy the purpose of it, yet still allow animals to migrate through? Is that even possible? Because I feel like if 
an animal could get through, a, a person could get through, which I feel like is the purpose of having a wall. Well, you know, typically if environmental, if environmental laws, wall, uh, laws were being followed, there would be looking at multiple alternatives for building projects like that. And that's not happening right now. What we do know is that for many years, the Department of Homeland Security and many experts have said that walls are not necessary in the rugged wild mountain habitats that they are now talking about construction in. That these are places that can be patrolled in other ways and it's not necessary to build a wall. So now there's a rush to build the wall in these places and no alternatives are being considered. So could you give me a little bit of information on how this what is the purpose of the study and then how you're going about coming up with those observations that you're looking for our study is spanning 34 miles of the border with mexico spanning two mountain ranges the huachuca mountains and the patagonia mountains and the san rafael valley is a big grassland valley and the headwaters of the santa cruz river um, these are all located about 70 miles from the town of Tucson, Arizona. And in this stretch of border, we have created a camera array using your basic trail wildlife camera, and they've been randomly distributed across a grid pattern. Our goal is to define the wildlife community in this mountainous and grassland habitat so that we have an, a starting species list to begin to monitor for change. We have deployed the cameras in a random grid pattern to make sure that we don't try to outsmart <laughs> where we think animals are, are wandering. It's really common when placing wildlife cameras as humans for us to think, oh, I'm pretty sure that deer goes over there or someone's gonna come take a drink off this water source. And many animals, we're, our intuition is often correct. We, we think we know, and yes, we will find animals um, in places where we, we choose, hand choose um, our camera locations. But the advantage of doing it randomly is that you'll capture the true variation in different types of habitat that are present in a landscape. And that's important because not every animal is gonna come up to a spring to take a drink of water. Some are gonna to be too afraid to come and drink there because that's where predators come. So by doing this randomly, we have cameras in places that probably have never had any sort of scientific research before, and we're gonna figure out which animals live there. And the, the spacing of our cameras are set up in a way that it's optimizing the difference between really wide ranging species like mountain lion or jaguar that can go for tens of miles, even hundreds of miles um, as they roam in their territory in the case of jaguar and small animals that don't go very far um, have a smaller home range. So we anticipate and already are detecting rodents, birds, raptors, deer, um, and then many of the, the predators that we suspected were living in this area. So how many, how many cameras are out now? And then are you planning to add more cameras later? Like what's your total perfect number of cameras that you could have out? At this point, we've installed 52 cameras on the US side. And we're working with a conservation nonprofit in Mexico called Naturalia. 
and they have some cameras already deployed across the border in Sonora to help us mirror the study in, um, in Mexico. Our plan is to put out additional cameras in Mexico. Um, our, our plans were cut short when the, when the border crossing stopped as we're dealing with the coronavirus crisis. So we're delayed in getting more cameras in Mexico, but we're grateful that our partners are contributing photo data um, just across the border for us. Yeah. So how are how are you how are you going about gathering the SD cards out of the cameras? Um, is it you know a weekly thing? Uh, I, I'm assuming it's not a daily thing. That's a lot of cameras, a, a lot of space. So um, how mm -hmm. often are you collecting the the cards? And then how many people? I feel like you have to have an army of people going through the thousands of pictures that you're going to be getting off of all these cameras. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> we would love that. Um, our, our, our initial plan for this project, and it continues to be my vision, is that we're able to incorporate volunteers into our field crews and to uh, helping us sort through all the photographs. At the present time, because of um, the restrictions we are we're dealing with with COVID-19, we have a pretty small group of people that are independently going to our camera sites. Um, in some of these places, it takes about it can take an hour to hike and check the camera and swap out the SD card, uh, make sure that everything's sitting well with the camera. And we have 52, so you could do the math. It definitely can take, um, it could take us a full week to get to every camera location. Our goal is to get to them um, at this point going forward, at least monthly. We're adjusting to the restrictions we're dealing with with travel and trying to figure it out, but we're really excited to see what's on what's been captured by the cameras and to be processing the data i can share with you that we've analyzed the first seven days of the data from all the cameras and we had eleven thousand wildlife photos and more than 27 species in just the first the first week of the project Eleven thousand pictures and 27 species Is, did i get that right yeah, so the cameras took more than 11,000 um, because we get false triggers. Uh, if you've ever used a wildlife camera, oh, you yeah. know that, you know, there's always a branch or there's grass waving that does those false triggers. So having sorted all of those out, we still had 11,000 photographs of animals, um, which was incredibly exciting. This is one of the most wild and rugged places in southern Arizona. We don't know what the diversity is here, though we know it's incredibly high. And every time we go back, we're going to be finding new species and we will be recording activity levels, really starting to get a sense of how active all these animals are in spring. And if we can keep the study going for as long as I hope we can, we're going to watch for seasonal changes. And if and when the border wall cuts through these mountain ranges, we will use these data to detect change, to understand how animal populations are adjusting to to their changed habitat structure. Yeah, as an avid game camera user, uh, I really enjoy seeing pictures of, of wildlife um, on our family properties. I get excited with just, you know, I get excited seeing the varied species that we see, um, which is really, for the most part, only maybe um, six, uh, you know, in, in a good, week or a couple weeks. Um, having said that though, I am placing them 
very strategically for very specific reasons, different than what you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel very overwhelmed if I go and pull the camera cards for the seven or so cameras that I have out on, on a single property, uh, I'll have somewhere between four and 5,000 pictures. And that is like crazy overwhelming for me. I can't even <laughs> imagine, um, having over 11,000 and, and then actually looking at 11,000 where it's like actual animals that you, uh, photographed uh, away from those false triggers. That's, um, that's insane to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a massive undertaking. It's definitely the largest wildlife monitoring project that our organization has never uh, ever taken on. We've had a distributed network of cameras, um, not in this grid grid design, but just in in key focal spots um, around the Sky Island region, and we're still maintaining those cameras as well. Right before um, I jumped on here to speak with you, Jason, I. I got um, a video of a mountain lion sent to me from one of our cameras near the border that had um, is actually taken in February, this video, it's at night, and you see a mountain lion walking with um, two, two kittens, and it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, I mean, everyone has, everyone who has game cameras out has that one species that just gets them crazy excited whenever they see it pop up, uh, and oftentimes for people like me, it's a lot to do with the rarity of it. Um, for mm-hmm. me, it's bobcats. Um, we, <laughs> yeah. have, we have one camera in one location that about three times a year, uh, we'll get some pictures of some bobcats. Uh, and the most excited I was is whenever we had a female with a couple kits uh, that walked Aww. by the camera. Uh, so what is, what's that one or two species that whenever you see that picture, you're like, oh, this is so cool. I'm, I, I, I'm glad I get to see this on the camera. Uh, well, I, I love so many of the animals, but, but really for us, that's what's so symbolic for our work are the cross-border cats, bobcat, mountain lion, jaguar, and ocelot. Um, it's really where the temperate species are mixing with their tropical cousins. And so, you know, getting a bobcat, I love the mountain lion, just even, even that, um, more exciting and, we are really curious to see if we're going to get any of the spotted cats on our cameras. Yeah, I took a before we got on, I took a moment to check out the website and see uh, everything that is on there. And it was really cool. You guys have a bunch of pictures up there of some of the different species that you've gotten on cameras that have been out. Uh, and it's just cool for me to see pictures of animals that are not obviously I'm not going to see here, you know, the ocelots and, and the jaguars, even the mountain lions. Um, and, you know, cause you're seeing them in their natural state, how they would normally be reacting in that environment, as opposed to going to a zoo or something, you know, a safari or something like that. Mm-hmm. It is. It's, I still, I still get that same thrill when I see them as well. If you see, um, these herds of javelina. I don't know if you know what javelina are. We also call them collared peccary. They're, rel- they're cousins of pigs basically, but they don't have tails. And they are just so funny. They come up and they stare at the camera and they bristle their fur. Um, we've had a mule deer come and take a nap right in front of one of our cameras, this huge buck um, just, just sat there. We had 500 photos of it just lounging, taking the afternoon off. Um, we had a bobcat from lower down 
below the camera. You could see it looking up at the camera and then it comes up and just looks right at the camera and takes a selfie. <laughs> so these are all in the very first few days of the project. Um, when I checked the first camera, it was from a wide open grassland area and we really didn't know what we were going to find on this camera. It doesn't have what you typically think of in terms of forests. Many of our camera sites are oak woodland forests, but this one didn't have any trees around it. And I, I started madly looking through the photographs as soon as I got back in the truck. And the first animal photo I saw was this pair of American kestrels, male and a female. And I, I swear they were showing off for the camera, these amazing photos of them just diving and swirling around right in front of it. And it just felt like this really wonderful sign that we're gonna be able to document these species, take their pictures, share them with the world and help everyone you know, join in appreciation for these animals and hopefully be motivated to help protect their habitat. Is there anything with this study that you're trying to do to try as a, as a group to try to prevent the wall from being built or to at least maybe, like you said, have the studies be put in place that would normally go through that have been waived? Or is this purely just a monitor before and after result? Well, um, I think it's it's serving multiple purposes, but our our role in this is to be um, a conservation science voice. We want to be collecting data that hopefully will be influential before it's too late. Um, nothing would be better than being able to maintain these migration corridors and not severing them. Um, so when border wall construction has been stopped in the past, it's been because the public stands up and says we don't want this wall and we're hoping that the compelling images and videos that we're going to take of these wildlife species will help motivate that response um, and we feel a very deep long-term commitment to these places to these species and if the wall is built we do want to be monitoring for change we do want to have as much information as possible at our disposal to help us guide the strategies that we can create to help um, you know, manage wildlife if we need to protect them, um, even post the disturbance of the wall construction. And then finally, use these data of where the wildlife corridors are most vital today to help call for the wall being removed. Um, we need to restore wildlife connectivity, and I hope that that will happen in my lifetime. So I know it's, uh, you said you really only got the first seven days, but um, you mentioned that in the past, uh, now security has basically said a wall doesn't need to be put in this area because it's such rugged country, people aren't going to be crossing here. Have you been seeing any pictures of people? Well, we have had a few images of people. We've had Border Patrol officers and uh, we've seen uh, one hunter and several hunting dogs. So that's the human influence that we've had on the camera so far. And on a, to be completely honest, that is exactly who what I, I would expect to see on the cameras in, in a place like that. So that mm -hmm. makes total sense. Uh, so if people want to become involved or at least just sort of see how the study's progressing, maybe see these pictures, uh, where can they go to get more information about Sky Island uh, Alliance and about this study? Yeah, great. Well, we welcome people to come and visit our website. We started a project page 
border wildlife study that's dedicated to the project on Sky Island Alliance website, which is www.skyislandalliance.org. On there, we're gonna be posting wildlife photo highlights and also sharing results as they come in. Our goal is to not wait for months for a scientific publication to come out, but to be sharing the data as quickly as we can with the public. You can also follow highlights on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and um, you can sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter, which will also have links to all the new information that we're finding. That's great. I'm glad that to hear that you guys have social uh, social media presence because we're in a very short attention span society at the moment, mm -hmm. and um, I feel like that would be a that is a great way to get the information out there quickly to gain interest, generate that interest, so that hopefully more people can go out and look uh, at your website and study look at this study a little bit more in detail. Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, well, it'll be great to connect with with you and your your listeners online. So, is there anything that we missed? Is there any uh, big, th uh, any other big things that the alliance is working on, or anything that you want to mention um, that you feel people might be interested in? Well, I think I I just hope that people, when they look through the photographs of what we're finding. While many of the species may be different from what you find in your own backyard, in your own local parks, I think you might see that some of the species are the same. I think our wildlife communities really do bridge the gap, so to speak, across distances because these animals, these populations move, animals move. I think it really does tie us all together. And I hope that everyone can start to feel a little bit more connected to what's happening here on the southern border. Um, help us think about how we can protect these animals, no matter where you live. Um, this is your shared backyard too. I really hope that when travel restrictions are lifted and it's safe to travel again, that people will come and visit the Sky Islands. Um, it blew me away the first time I came down here. It wasn't at all what I was expecting. And I, I hope you add it, everybody adds it to their bucket list because it's a truly, truly special place. Yeah. Um now that I've looked into it, that is on my bucket list as a as a place to visit in the very near future. Uh, the pictures that I've seen are just amazing, and I'm sure it's just like most pictures you see of really anywhere out west. The the pictures just don't do the actual scenery justice. Um, so um, hopefully, maybe you'll see me down there in uh, a couple months or once this uh, travel restriction has been lifted. That's, that'd be great. I hope so. Well, Emily, thank you for coming on and talking about this. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, this is some great information and something that I feel uh, a lot of the listeners will be able to get behind and support. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for, for talking about this with me and, and giving the Sky Islands a chance to, to speak to everybody. That'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Emily for coming on to talk about this study and the importance of it. I really think it's beneficial and overly important to really study and understand how humans are impacting wildlife and, and the things that we build, the structures that we build, how it can affect the movement of wildlife. Uh, as we talked about in the episode, 
some people are starting to already uh, be interested in this because of the GPS tracking of mule deer. To be able to recognize that these animals are not identifying the boundaries that we as people have set up for countries, you know, that is just vitally important to make sure that we are helping that wildlife as much as possible. Just a quick update for you, uh, talking to Emily since we recorded this, which is only a couple weeks ago, they've analyzed some more data. Uh, they know that 44% of wildlife observations are birds so far, 14% are invertebrates, so mostly butterflies. Uh, they have about 8% canine, 3% feline, and 70, 17% ungulates. Uh, the rest are some smaller mammals, including skunks, rabbits, have javelina, and rodents. Um, they're one thing that they're that she is mostly surprised by, uh, probably the most, is that they have so many butterflies on camera, which makes sense if you think back to one of our episodes from last fall where we talked to Marcus Gray uh, about the monarchs in the rough program. The monarchs should be migrating north now, so. That makes sense. There's going to be other butterflies as well, too. Uh, I want to make sure that you take time to reach out to Skylines and just sort of see what they have to put out. Uh, you can find them on Twitter and Instagram, Sky Island Alliance. You can find them on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Sky Island Alliance. And their website is Sky, Sky Island Alliance.org. So it's real simple. Just search Sky Island Alliance and you will find the pictures and the information about them. Uh, it's definitely a great thing that they're doing to try to pre preserve this very special place in our country. Until next week, get out there, outside of quarantine, get outside, get some sun on your face, even if it's just sitting in your yard or on your front porch, and do your best to stay wild.